You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess our great need of you and we ask that by your spirit, you would not only be present with us, which you are, but that we would know it. And that you would also by your spirit teach us from your word what you have for us. So you would encourage our discouraged hearts and remind us of your greatness and your power and your promises that you never fail to bring to full completion. Speak to us through your word this morning and encourage your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. <clears throat> We're glad that you're here with us. We are a people called by God into relationship with Him and into relationship with one another. It's our joy to live in that fellowship as we gather together on Sunday mornings and sit under God's Word, as we gather in small group community during the week. And as we do this, we are being equipped for service as disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. We are shaped by and sharing the gospel. Uh, Together on Sundays, we are studying the Old Testament book of Exodus. So grab your Bibles and make your way to Exodus chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, some folks are coming around uh, and can give you one so you can follow along. Some of our texts will be on the screen and some will not. Um, So just so you have... uh, text you can follow along with us. Uh, The theme, or at least kind of the overarching theme of the book of Exodus, has to do with God revealing himself to his people. Over and over again in Exodus, we hear God say, I am your God. And then what often follows is God proving himself to be present, to be faithful, to be working on behalf of his people in order to fulfill all those promises that he has made. This week, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through Exodus chapter 7, verse 7. We're not going to read it all. We'll read a few pieces of it. And as we work through Exodus, we've said this from the very beginning, we're looking at the text with these kind of ideas or questions in mind. What does this text tell us about who God is? What does this text tell us about what it means to be God's people? And where do we see the shape or the picture or the arc, if you will, of God's redemption? Now, you may have said, okay, if you've been with us a couple of weeks, I've heard this before. I've said this every week, and I will say it every time, every Sunday as we preach through Exodus, so that as you are reading on your own Exodus, you're reading this Old Testament narrative, you're asking these questions. I want us to ask these questions. And today, specifically, I think we'll see God revealing himself in this way. We're hearing God say, I am your God who promises deliverance. I am your God who promises deliverance. Now, before we read, let me ask a question. Can you think of a time when you did something right? You did everything right, and yet the the outcome was still wrong in some way. I can recall more than one project, two come to mind, working on a carburetor and working on a bathroom sink plumbing project where I watched the videos 
I followed the instructions. I did everything right. And afterwards, it didn't work. In one case, it was worse than when I had started. Sometimes, doing the right thing does not produce, at least not right away, the desired outcome. Can you think of a time like that? Or a situation or a project? When you did the right thing and in the end it still produced pain or grief or frustration? Maybe it's not plumbing or carburetors, but something more significant. A relationship. Maybe. When obedience to God, I've done everything right, I've done everything as I'm supposed to do, when obedience to God doesn't produce, at least not right away, the result that you think it should produce. When we do the right thing, expecting a different outcome, we might find ourselves just throwing up our hands and saying, forget it. Forget it. Right? And when this happens, we can be pretty discouraged. When we do the right thing, expecting a different outcome, we might find ourselves discouraged. And that's the problem I think God wants to address a little bit today in our text. When obedience to God produces grief, we are easily discouraged. But God promises and provides full deliverance. When obedience to God produces grief, we are easily discouraged. But God promises and provides full deliverance. It's the thing I want us to hang our, hang our hook on today, if you will. Now, because we can't read all the verses that we'll cover this morning, we're going to look at three sections from this larger section. Exodus 5, 1 through 9, Exodus 6, 1 through 9, and Exodus 7, 1 through 7. So let's read, it's a few verses, um, let's read them uh, this morning. Uh, hear the word of the Lord today, Exodus 5, starting in verses 1 through 9. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. <clears throat> but Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Go back to your burdens. Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that, that, that shall, excuse me, that they made in the past, you shall impose upon them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> but the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people 
of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And finally, Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God. To Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his hand. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. And bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is God's holy and perfect word. When obedience to God produces grief, we are easily discouraged. But God promises and provides full deliverance. I want to try to bolster our faith a little bit today. Give us some truth hooks on which we can hang our hope so that in the midst of our discouragement, we can be sure that God will deliver. We can be sure. So here are three hooks for our hope today. That there is grief in obedience sometimes. We'll talk about why that negative is a positive hook for our hope. We will experience grief even when walking by faith to God in obedience to him. Two, it's God's deliverance. He's the one who delivers. He's the deliverer. And the third hook for our hope is this, that laced in here in Exodus, in these two plus chapters, we see lots of gospel promise and gospel provision. There's all sorts of gospel here in Exodus. This is not just a cold Old Testament narrative. And like God's deliverance, it's not merely a promise. It also has behind it the power to bring it about. So let's look first uh, at the first hope. Now, it may seem counterintuitive, like I said, to, to highlight a negative thing like grief, but, but I think it's actually true. I think there's actually hope here that we will experience grief even in our obedience. The question we have to ask in the midst of that is this. When conflict or grief or hardship comes from obedience, do we see it as failure Either I have failed or God has failed. Or is God doing something in testing and growing our faith? When conflict comes, when grief comes, do we see it, interpret it as failure? Or is God doing something to grow our faith? See, Moses is faithful to go to Pharaoh. We talked about it in our community group this last week. Like, what changed for him? He had this list of excuses and finally he's like, fine, I'll go. Was he reluctant? Did he come around to it? I mean, Israel's elders were excited. 
It's, they worshipped. They thought, okay, God spoke to you. He's going to free us. Was Moses excited? We don't really know. But we do know that at the very least, he said, fine, I'll go. And so he goes. He obeyed God at least enough, trusted him at least enough to say, I will go talk to Pharaoh. And look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 5. Moses goes, as God said, to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, Who is this Yahweh? Who is this God that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know this God of yours. Why should I listen to him? Then look at what happens. Pharaoh gets angry and increases the burden on the Israelites. One of the primary um, labors for Israel as slaves in Egypt was brick making. I don't know if anyone's ever mixed concrete by hand in a bucket or in a, a wheelbarrow or just on the ground. It's not fun. Like, they have mixers for that. In Egypt, one of the primary responsibilities of the Israelites as slaves was mixing, usually in large pits, bricks. I'd say by hand, but it was more by foot. Where they would mix clay and water and straw, mash it up, manual labor in the hot sun all day long, mixing a slurry that would then be made into handmade bricks. And Pharaoh says... Hey, up to this point, we've been nice to you. We've gone and Egyptians have collected the straw and dried it and cut it and put it in piles so you can add it to your bricks. Now you have to go get your own straw and bring it in. And by the way, you can't let your uh, productivity slip. You, you need to actually increase your number of bricks that you're making to last year's productivity while going and getting your own straw. Good luck with that. Pharaoh's angry and actually increases their workload. Verse five of, or excuse me, verse nine of chapter five. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Pharaoh's essentially accusing Moses and Israel of excuse making to get out of work. Moses, you're essentially lying. I don't know this God of yours. This is just an excuse. Moses is faithful, and it not only gives him, but the people of Israel grief, because Pharaoh doesn't listen to him. He makes life harder for Israel. So there's this increased burden on the people. And what do they do? Well, they do what most people do when things get hard. They complain. Who do I have to talk to around to deal with this, right? Can I speak to your manager? They're upset. So who do they go to? They go to Pharaoh. They go to Pharaoh. The foremen of the people were Hebrews who worked on behalf of their Egyptian taskmasters. So you had Pharaoh and then you had all of his Egyptian officials as taskmasters overseeing the work. But then you had these middle managers who were Hebrews, the foremen, who were also bearing the burden of the extra work. So the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's response is, well, you guys just must have extra time on your hands if you think you can just stop working for a few days and go hang out in the wilderness for like a time of worship. We have stuff for you to do. So, so Pharaoh pushes back on the foreman, and what do they do is they leave their time with Pharaoh and look at Moses, and they blame him. They blame Moses. Look at verse 20. They, the foreman, met Moses and Aaron as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge. Essentially, the Lord should judge you, Moses. 
because you have made us, you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. You have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You, Moses, have made us look bad to Pharaoh. If he's harsh with us, it is your fault. Now put yourself in Moses' position for a second. This is beginning again to feel like a bad idea. How can this not feel like failure to Moses? Look, I, I, I went to Pharaoh like you said. He didn't listen to me. Then he made it worse on Israel. They already didn't like me. I wasn't sure. Now they really don't like me. They blame me. This is a bad idea. And in verse 22, Moses turns his complaint to God. Oh Lord, Moses says, why have you done evil to this people? Why have you, God, done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. That's a pretty bold statement Moses makes, right? It is clear, I think, that Moses considers this a giant fail. For him, and a giant fail for God. Why did you ever send me? You have not delivered your people at all. But the question is, did Moses fail? Or better, did God fail? See, if you look back, just one chapter into chapter 4, even though it's not what Moses or maybe what those Hebrew foremen would prefer, it's actually going exactly how God said it was going to go. Yes, he promised deliverance, but the way to deliverance was through the hard heart of Pharaoh. God told Moses in Exodus 4.21, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So the question is, what did Moses think was going to happen? Right? I think Moses is displaying what we all do, some faulty expectations. Israel has some faulty expectations. That's why I don't think this is an object lesson in failure. It's an opportunity for the testing of their faith. Alec Moiter, who has written a really wonderful commentary, if you are interested in commentaries in the book of Exodus, I recommend it. He says this, There is no such thing as an untested faith. Looking square at Moses, right here goes, There is no such thing as an untested faith. And so I think that's at least in part what's happening here. As Moses faces resistance from Pharaoh, as he faces rejection from the people, Moses' faith is being tested. Moses falters, right? Israel falters. We falter. It's funny. Jesus speaks to this exact same thing in John chapter 16. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's telling them all that's going to happen to him. This is coming. I'm not going to be with you forever. It's going to get hard. But, but, But hold on. He says this, verse 33 of John 16. He goes, I've said these things to you. I've told you what's going to happen so that in me you may have peace. In this world, Jesus tells his disciples, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And you can imagine his disciples going, okay, great. We'll have trouble, but you've overcome the world. The focus is on what? Jesus is overcoming the world. Trouble, we'll get to that when we get there. And then in a few chapters, when confronted by trouble, they run away. Right? 
It's not unlike Moses. Just a chapter ago, okay, okay, Pharaoh's heart's going to be hard, but you're delivering us, right? Cool. Let's do the deliverance part. But then when trouble comes and Pharaoh's hard heart is on display, and then it's like, hold on. What did I miss? Right? That's, I think, what's happening. And this is where the limitations of Moses are seen, and the perfections of Jesus are also seen. See, in the face of grief, Moses says, God, why me? I don't think you've got this right. But in the face of not just persecution, not just hardship, but gruesome, torturous death, Jesus says, Father, let this cup be taken from me. But not my will, but yours be done. In this way, we start to see Jesus as a much better Moses. A better deliverer. One who doesn't falter. In fact, Jesus actually goes ahead of us, not with faulty expectations, but with clear ones. Jesus endures suffering. And if I can use Exodus language here, Jesus willingly makes bricks without straw. He endures hardship for us so that in our suffering, we are then made to look like Jesus, who in his sufferings and according to his human nature was shown to be perfect. Jesus was perfect even in his sufferings. And so to God's glory, we are being perfected when we suffer with and for Jesus. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you. Why does it come upon you? To test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There is no such thing as an untested faith. So the promise is actually there will be trial. That's the promise. You will experience grief. And so where do we need to check our expectations to make sure that we're not imposing on God's promises our timeline and our desired outcome? And how do we not give in to the folly of thinking that the grief we experience in following God or doing the right thing must mean either God has failed or we have failed? Can we see in our trials and in our griefs, for righteousness' sake, not as evidence of failure, but actually just the opposite? That in our trials, we can see evidence that God is doing something in us to make us look more like Jesus. We will often experience grief, <clears throat> even in our desire to be obedient to God. And Exodus 6, verse 1 actually gives a really significant but. Look at the passage. Exodus 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, by the way, as you're reading your Bibles, almost every time you come across that word in your English translations, not all the time, but oftentimes something really good is following it. Usually. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Point one is a reminder that in our obedience, we will still experience grief. Point two is this. It's God's deliverance. Now you're going to see what I'm going to do, God tells Moses. See, as often is the case, like Moses, we too are limited in our perspe perspective, right? We are finite. We, I don't know what's going to happen in five seconds, let alone five minutes, let alone five days. 
So in our situation, in Moses, we go, hey, come on, God. Why aren't you doing something about this? In fact, it's getting worse, God. And God only, not only says, will Pharaoh let people of Israel go? He'll, he'll let them go, but not only will he let them go, he will actually drive them out. I'm going to make it so hard for Pharaoh because of the evil in his heart and the evil that he has done. It's going to be so bad for him that he is going to be glad to be rid of you. And then over the next chapter or so, we'll see the Lord again remind Moses of this promise. We won't get to it today. We'll get to it in, uh, next week as we look at the, uh, the plagues and the judgment of God on, on Egypt. But God is reminding Moses, I am the one who delivers you. Let me remind you of that. And he shows, God shows his deliverance with his past promises, his present provision, his supply to do that, and then the future hope. Let's look at both past, or all past, present, and future of God's deliverance. Chapter 6, verse 2. I am the Lord. That's where we see that name, Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Interesting aside here. The Lord tells Moses, I appeared to your fathers. I made a covenant with them. And I'm making one with you. And I'll make one through you with Israel. We'll get to all of that as we move through Exodus. But I appeared to them as God Almighty. El Shaddai. The Lord Almighty. That's how I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here, he puts a big old exclamation point on his promise and said, I am the I am. I'm telling you who I am. I am not just God Almighty, although I am. I am the Lord, eternally existent. There is none like me. I am God. And maybe you heard that as we read through the scripture three, four, five times. You will know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. And then in Exodus 6, verses 14 through 30, we get a genealogy. Because that's what everyone's looking for at this point in time as they read their Bibles, is a genealogy. By the way, anytime you see a genealogy, you should always ask, why is this here? Not because I don't understand why it's here, because usually it's here for a good reason. Many times, a genealogy is used to trace a family line, right? How did we get to where we are from where we started? Maybe you've done one of those. You've done a family genealogy project or... uh, Family tree as a kid. I remember as a kid talking to like all my living grandparents and relatives to ask them about their grandparents and where they came from and when they traveled to the United States and, and, and get, got to know all of that. I had a, a, a great, great aunt who lived uh, a very long time. And so I literally asked her questions about my family tree in elementary school and I put it on a big poster board, drew a picture of a tree. Right? I don't know how many of you have done this. This is essentially, uh, as an aside, I should probably recheck the, the accuracy of it. But somewhere in my family line, uh, I am related to the English sailor and privateer, a.k.a. pirate, Sir Francis Drake. So somewhere in my history, according to my great-great-aunt, uh, who is no longer with us, so I can't ask her if it's true, but I'm pretty sure it is, uh, a pirate. I have pirate blood somewhere in the past. 
and I'm just going to roll with it because that's awesome. <laughs> right? So this genealogy that we get here in Exodus goes back to Jacob. We talked about how did the people of Israel get to Egypt? Well, it hinges on Jacob. Specifically, tracing Moses and Aaron's family line back through to Jacob's son, Levi. And just one of the interesting parts from this genealogy is this. That like his great-great-grandfather Jacob, Moses was not the firstborn son who was expected to receive the inheritance and the blessing. Aaron was the older brother. Aaron was the firstborn son. Moses was the younger son. And yet, the younger son here receives the covenant blessing and calling of God differently than the older one. And so I think this genealogy is here, at least in part, to remind Israel, to remind us, that God was at work long before Moses was born. That this wasn't Moses' idea. It's not going to be upended by one puny little pharaoh. That God was going to ensure that his deliverer would come at the right time to accomplish everything that God said he would. It is a reminder that God has ordered history to accomplish his purposes. It's a reminder for Moses of God's past promise, I will deliver you. It's also, we see in this passage, a a reminder of God's current, present provision. Verses 3 through 5 of chapter 6. Verse 5 Moses said, or God says to Moses, I have heard the groanings of my people. That's a present statement. I'm, I'm here. I've heard them. I'm present. And in verse 9, even amidst harsh opposition, what am I doing right now, Moses? I'm sending you. Their cries aren't lost on me. I'm not just twiddling my thumbs. Now I am sending you. And here we hear a little bit of Moses' excuse making come out again. God, the people didn't listen to me. They, they don't even like me. Why should Pharaoh listen to me? I'm a man of unclean lips. Essentially, Moses is saying out loud again, I'm not your guy. God doesn't really listen to Moses in this instance. And he says, here's what I'm charging you to do. You can think you're not the guy. I'm telling you, tell the people this and tell Pharaoh this. And then in chapter 7, God says what he kind of already said. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. In Egypt, and all her gods, they operate in a power structure. So if you want something done, you sacrifice to, you give to, you meditate, you pray to the more powerful gods. The lesser gods, you can address them if you want to, but if you really want to deal with something, you want a better crop, you want fertility and expansion of your family, you deal with the big, powerful gods. And God is saying, I've actually sent you, and I'm empowering you to speak Egypt's language. They only speak and understand power structures. So let me show you a little bit about my power as the one God. You will speak with and do signs of authority before Pharaoh. We're going to speak their language. I'm going to show them who God really is. And we're going to get into that next week when you look at each of the plagues and how each one of them is essentially a judgment on Egypt's different gods. 
Don't forget, God says, I will further harden Pharaoh's already hard heart. He's not going to let you go right away. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and then the Egyptians will know. So not only will you know that I'm the Lord, but they're going to know that I am the Lord, Yahweh. I've provided by sending you Aaron and empowering you to bring the people out. And then he says, here's what the future looks like. Verses 6 through 8. Specifically verse 7. I'm going to take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to give you this land that I promised to your fathers as your possession. It is yours. That's what this is going to look like. God's deliverance promised in the past, provided for now in real time with Moses, all the way to what the future will look like when you're with me and I'm your God and you're my people living in the land of promise. That's what you can hold on to, Moses. And as we look at chapter 7 through 13 next week, it's exactly what God does. He lays his hand heavy on Egypt and by his power brings Israel, Israel out from under those burdens. So the question is, how do we then understand and interpret this interaction between God and Moses? Like we said earlier, I think we can learn a lot from Moses as Moses points to Jesus. In the introduction to this sermon series, I quoted one commentator who said this, that God's entire plan of salvation is Exodus-shaped. That the whole of Scripture is Exodus-shaped. It's It's giving us a glimpse of, when we look at Exodus, God's work in the world to save sinners. So Moses and his deliverance of Israel, their exodus from Egypt, is pointing us to Jesus, who has delivered God's people from bondage to sin and into the promised land of his eternal kingdom. That is where I think we get to our third and final point this morning, that here in Exodus we see lots of gospel promise and gospel provision. Gospel means good news. And so if God promises, I will deliver you, that's good news. Right? Tony Marita in his commentary says this. um, That there are gospel pictures here in Exodus. And here's just five words, gospel words we see that come to the surface here in Exodus. I think it's good for us to look at some of the I will statements of God here that point not only to biblical history, but gospel promise. Here's what I mean. I think there's five gospel promises here. The first one is this. There's a gospel promise of liberation. Exodus 6, 6. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. That word deliver you there is speaks of liberation, speaks of freedom from chains. I will liberate you from your enslavement. Here's why this is a gospel promise. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1. Paul says this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Why? To deliver us. Because of Jesus' death for sin and resurrection from the grave, we are liberated, freed from our former enslavement to sin and even death. So that when Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, for the creation was subjected to futility, 
but because of, uh, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope, what is the hope? That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The gospel tells us that Jesus liberates us, frees us from all our bondage. If you are in Christ, you have been liberated from bondage to sin, and you will be liberated in full in glory. That's where we see gospel promise of liberation, even here in Exodus. Here's a second one. Redemption. Exodus 6, verse 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. The title or responsibility of the Redeemer has tied to it both privilege and responsibility. The Redeemer is responsible to care for and provide for and restore all that was lost. So with the Redeemer comes the picture of purchase. God's people were in bondage and God was coming to purchase them back. The Apostle Paul talks about it like this in Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, there's our word, redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You have been redeemed, set free, and renewed, restored. It's redemption language. Not only will I liberate you from bondage, I will restore to that to you all that you have lost. That's where we get this picture of redemption. And then in Galatians 4, which you heard it in the scripture I just read, the third promise of gospel, the third gospel promise, which is adoption. Not only will I redeem you, I will adopt you. Exodus 6 verse 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Maybe you missed this. Maybe I didn't highlight it. Exodus chapter 4, God calls Israel his son. My son. And here he says, you're my people. I'm your God. And I have to ask, in reading this right here, as God is expressing his love towards them, what has Israel done to deserve God's love as a father? Yeah, the answer is nothing. They've done nothing to deserve it. It is out of the abundant love of God that he loves Israel. And Jesus comes along and says, actually, I am the perfect son, Jesus says. I, I, I have actually earned the love of the Father. And in exchange, my perfection, I trade for your imperfection. So that you, undeserving servants, might now become sons and daughters. This is the gospel promise of adoption. Jesus says the same thing in 1 John verse three or chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. As an aside, I feel like we can grow in our gospel understanding by watching adoption happen. I have learned more about the gospel, not more, I've learned much about the gospel, let me say it that way, by seeing actual, practical adoptions happen by families that I know in, in real time. Getting a glimpse of this gospel promise. How gracious God is to Israel 
at how gracious God is to us in Christ. He liberates, he redeems, he adopts. The fourth gospel promise is this. He grants an inheritance. Exodus 6, verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I will give it to you for a possession. It will be yours. Remember, at this time, for generations now, they've been homeless. They've been wandering. They've been in a land that's not theirs. And the land that is theirs has been occupied by others. God's going to give them back what he's promised them. But the question has to be asked, okay, so what's the gospel promise in inheritance? That one's a little sticky, right? Because, like, this is an eternal kingdom, right? We don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. So what does inheritance look like? As God's chosen to redeem children in Christ, we are receiving an inheritance. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Okay, so there's our inheritance word. And that inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's being kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Which we go, okay, great. That's cool. Our inheritance is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for us. But what does that look like? Well, here's, here's one aspect of what that looks like. Paul says this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2. If we have died with him, we will live with him. And if we endure, we will reign with him. We don't have a good concept in this country of the reign of a monarch. We like to do away with monarchs and send them packing back across the ocean. Right? Take that, King George. Right? Like, that's what we like to do. That's our history. And yet, there's a beautiful picture of a glorious and godly reigning king that I think we, we just don't get as easily here. So when Paul tells Timothy, we will reign with him, that it is now our inheritance that we will reign in an eternal kingdom with God, who is good and perfect, and who is king. Paul also adds, if we deny him, he'll deny us, which is a sobering reminder, but then also says, if we are faith, faithless, he remains faithful. Jesus, the faithful one, promises and provides for our inheritance. And just one of those aspects is that we will reign with him in glory forever. And the fifth and final gospel promise here is that God will act with both judgment and mercy. The reason I say this is a gospel promise is because this is exactly how Jesus says it will go. Back in Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will lay my hand on Egypt. I will bring my hosts, my people, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. God sends Moses as a redeemer and as a mediator. Meaning, he's going to mediate. He's going to be the go-between between God and Egypt in his judgment and the go-between between God and Israel for his mercy. Tony Morita says in his commentary on this passage, I was going to make a slide and I forgot, so you'll just have to listen. God's glory would be seen in his judgment and in his mercy. Notice in this passage there are two ways 
to know the Lord, to know Yahweh. God says it, you will know that I am the Lord as I bring you up out of the land of Egypt. And he tells Egypt, you will know, they will know that I am the Lord as I bring judgment. First, you may know him by experiencing his mercy and salvation. That's how Israel's experiencing it. Second, you may know him by experiencing his wrath and judgment. Here's what Merida says. God will deal with his enemies either by drowning them or by redeeming them through the cross. Two ways to know God. He will deal with his enemies in one of two ways. He will drown them, which we'll see in upcoming chapter as Israel pursues Israel through the Red Sea, as Egypt pursues Israel through the Red Sea. God will deal with his enemies either by drowning them or by redeeming them. And this is a beautiful little picture that we were once enemies and are now covered in God's mercy. Also, while we have breath in our lungs today, God is displaying mercy. I just want you to hear that. If you're breathing today, it's because God's being merciful. He hasn't drowned us yet. He's giving us mercy. And these are gospel promises. The reason I say they're gospel promises is because Jesus is actually not just the better redeemer than Moses. He's actually the better mediator. Sent by the Father to deliver us from bondage to sin Satan, death, and hell, and to deliver, to mediate God's mercy and kindness to us through himself. God promises and provides full deliverance. Now, it's not in our passage, but if you were to look ahead just a few verses to chapter 7, verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. In spite of the trouble and the grief that they were experiencing, they continued by faith to keep walking and just doing what the Lord told them to do. When we are discouraged, we can preach these gospel promises to ourselves as a reminder that God, who said he's going to deliver us, has delivered us, and will deliver us. This is why we shape our corporate worship the way that we do. Here's a really tangible explanation. This is why we take communion Weekly. This is why we sing and we pray. We are rehearsing the gospel that even when we are discouraged, we are saying, God, you are sovereign over the cosmos. That you keep your promises. That you liberate us from our bondage. That you redeem us and adopt us. That you turn sinners into saints. That you're giving us an inheritance. That you're showing us mercy. These are the gospel promises for deliverance provided and fulfilled in Jesus. So as we close this morning, I'd like to invite you to do something. And if you're not comfortable, that's fine. I would like to invite you just to close your eyes and listen as I read to you from Hebrews chapter 12, a little reminder of this is now how we live in light of God's promises and his provision to be our redeemer. We live like this, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus, despising the shame. Jesus, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess in both joy and discouragement, we look to Jesus. And in your power, we want to walk by faith because in Jesus, 
You, our good Father, has promised and provided for our deliverance. As we come to the table, would you help us to see and to taste the the tangible reminders of your overwhelming love for us. In the bread and the cup, the reminder of not only your promise, but the provision that you have actually made a way for us to be renewed. Would you encourage your people? Would you call us to, to surrender, to see your mercy, and to rejoice? Strengthen and encourage your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.